everybody. Welcome to Muscle Maven Radio. I am your host, Ashley Van Houten. Thank you so much for being here with me today. I really appreciate you listening. It means a lot to me. And I hope you're having an awesome summer so far. I wish we could kind of have more small talk, but you know, I'm just speaking into a microphone by myself. You're not here. And, um, you know, there's really not much to report on my end. I'm very busy. I'm working multiple jobs. Not that I'm complaining. It's great. But, you know, there's not a lot of vacation or or breaks on the horizon this summer. So I guess we might as well just keep our head down and get our work done and run outside once an hour to sit in the sun and just be grateful for it. That's basically what I'm working with. So, all right. Small talk aside, today's episode is with Dr. Jamie Seaman, aka Dr. Fit and Fabulous. She is a functional OBGYN and surgeon, and I love this distinction because I'm learning more and more as I uh, interview amazing health professionals and innovative people uh, in the health and fitness space that you can be a functional anything, right? Like, We have functional medicine physicians, we have functional OBGYNs, we have functional dentists, we have, it's basically the approach that I am going to look at my profession from a holistic, whole body, getting to the root of the issue kind of feel. And that's what she does. And I love it. She calls herself a vagina doctor, which is also great. I call her an amazing badass. She is a mom. She brings babies into the world every day. She is a contestant on the Titan Games. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but, and I don't even have a TV, so I have to like go out of my way to watch this, but it's sort of like a reboot of American Gladiators a little bit. It's hosted by The Rock. So obviously we have to get into that. I have to ask her if there's any chance that, you know, I could get his direct phone number at some point so we could be friends. We'll see how that goes. Um, But she was a contestant on this amazing show where she gets to go and, you know, do these crazy physical feats on TV in front of a million people and her family and The Rock. Pretty crazy. But she just provides people with so much valuable information, ranging from nutrition. She talks about uh, keto and carnivore and low carb and and, um, functional nutrition. She talks about hormonal health and sexual health, uh, health for women who are both pregnant uh, and trying to become pregnant and not pregnant, just women with our whole host of uh, complicated hormones and goals and challenges. So we talk about all of it. We talk about meat and lifting weights and how to eat if you're pregnant or looking to become pregnant. We talk about keto and carbs while pregnant. We talk about our cycles and what our period can tell us about our health. We talk about metabolic flexibility. So yeah, this one's really for the ladies, but it's also for anybody who has a lady in their life. Maybe you're trying to get your lady pregnant. I don't know. I don't know what's going on in your life, but this is useful for everybody because women's health is is human health too, right? And the more we know, the better off we are. So I hope you enjoy my interview with Jamie Seaman. Wait until the end when I can tell you about some special offers and things coming up on the horizon. Um, But without further ado, please enjoy my interview with the amazing Dr. Fit and Fabulous. All right, Dr. Seaman, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm so happy you're here. Hi, it's great to be here. So I got a lot of questions for you. I almost kind of don't know where to start. Um, And like we were just saying offline, I I don't really want to like talk too much about current events, but I think also we can't, we can't deny what's happening outside of the, uh, the, you know, us talking on Zoom right now. So we are in kind of a weird time in life in terms of the, hopefully the latter stages of this pandemic and the shelter in place. And, you know, there's lots of stuff going on in the real world and in social media that's kind of upheaving a lot of people and, and emotions and stuff like that. So I guess my first question is, how is work for you right now? What is the state of your practice and your work and, and how you're working? Yeah, I don't think 2020 was quite the uh, year we were anticipating. I had all these things on our schedule and like most people in the world, it. um it, it is not going as planned. So from, from our family perspective, you know, I'm a full-time physician and COVID has really kind of thrown a wrench in our healthcare system. So for a while we stopped doing surgery, but of course the babies were still being born. So I've continued to work through, you know, through the pandemic. And then I have a husband who's a police officer. So he's continued to work through the pandemic. So our family 
you know, my husband and I have, have continued to work, but of course our girls were homeschooling for a while and and now we're finally into summer break. And finally, from a, a, a COVID perspective in our community, things have really started to open back up. So we're doing surgery again and um, things are finally getting back to a little, a little more normalcy. And I'm hoping that the summer with the summer weather, um, that, that, that that continues. I think we all need some sort of vacation to look forward to at this point, but yeah. we're, we're surviving. We are. Okay. As an, an OBGYN and, you know, a functional um, obstetrician and, and, you know, somebody who's obviously speaking to women's health a lot, um, I want to ask you questions selfishly as a, a woman who does not have children but may one day have children, if you can give me any words that will make me less terrified about the process. But, <laughs> but I think maybe more generally, I just want to ask the question, you know, there is that word functional um, that comes up. And I'd love for you to explain how that applies to like obstetrics and working with um, women who want to have a baby. Because we talk a lot about functional medicine practitioners and functional physicians, sort of generally speaking, but sort of how does that relate back to women who are trying to conceive, are pregnant, you know, that kind of thing? Yeah. So let me rewind just a little bit so that people kind of understand my story and how I really ended up with this functional OBGYN practice is that I grew up as an athlete. Um, I was very active. I was active in the gym. I was active on the field, on the court, you name it. But because of my activity level, I really got away throughout my entire childhood and really young adulthood eating very poorly. I went to college. I was a collegiate athlete and I actually got a degree in nutrition and exercise science. And I got the degree because I felt like most of my friends that were pre-med tracks were like chemistry, biochemistry. And I thought, what the heck am I going to do with that if I don't get into medical school? So I knew that, you know, with my athletic background that I would maybe have um, a little bit, you know, a little more of a base in nutrition and exercise science for, for some sort of career. Well, luckily, my background is very unique to, to a lot of my friends. I came into medical school with this, with this knowledge base that my, that my colleagues didn't have. And I still wasn't eating all that great. <laughs> we always say like doctors are the worst patients, right? So, but here I was with this complete physical change of pace in medical school. So um, all of a sudden I was struggling with my weight. Um, I ended up getting pregnant three times in like 58 months. So we have three daughters that are 23 months apart and I fail my glucose testing I get diagnosed with hypothyroidism and eventually was diagnosed with prediabetes. And I had kind of just this awakening because when I was getting my nutrition degree, I mean, we were taught all the things that, that everybody has been told for the last 20 years. Um, eat a low fat diet, don't eat too much sodium, um, meat, red meat causes cancer. I mean, you name it. And here I was kind of at this like crux in my life where I had these preventable medical conditions, yet I was supposed to be the authority for my patients on health and wellness. And I just felt like an imposter. And so I really set out kind of on a personal journey to fix my health. And I thought, I'm just going to show, you know, that, that's what kind of started in 2015, 2016. Well, you know, as I kind of went on my personal mission, you know, I'm thinking, I have this nutrition degree. Why can't I figure this out? I was doing a spoke feed and like trying extreme diet, ketogenic, high protein approach and physiology that it made sense. I, I had prediabetes. My dad's a diabetic. It made sense to reduce dietary carbohydrates, drive the insulin down, and it would fix my problems. And it did. I, I had had PCOS in the past as well. So here's this condition that I treat patients for all the time. And as I really dove into a lot of this research, I realized even in the obstetrics literature that there were things I was never taught. Um, like for instance, the fact that hyperinsulinemia increases your risk of preeclampsia. I thought preeclampsia was just this kind of random disease that happened from the placenta and you delivered the baby in the placenta and it went away. But then as I look at the literature that it, that it increases a mom's lifetime risk of cardiovascular disease, it makes sense that hyperinsulinemia is, is connected to something like preeclampsia and cardiovascular disease. They're all connected. And I started just making these connections in my mind, all of the things that would make my patients 
either die or be very miserable for the rest of their life, which are basically cancer, cardiovascular disease, and neurodegenerative diseases, could all be fixed if you fix their metabolic dysfunction. And when we talk about metabolic dysfunction, dysfunction, I mean, diet is the number one absolute thing. When you look at the efficacy of medications or prescriptions that I might write for patients, you know, they may improve their metabolic markers by a few percent, 5%, 10%. You know, it, it, it's nothing it's nothing magical. We don't have any magic, I promise you, medicine. Um, but when you're talking about lifestyle interventions, you can improve these patients' outcomes by upwards of like 80%. And so I really started to, after I had this personal shift in my life, have a huge shift in my medical practice. Um, my patient intakes changed, the things I was recommending to patients changed. And I started to see changes in my patients like quickly, like people were getting off medication, people were feeling better, like their anxiety and depression was going away. And I just had kind of this awakening. And, you know, you always have to be questioning everything that you've ever learned. And I, I understand where people in medicine are frustrated you know, here I was, I paid for this Bachelor of Science degree, and I don't want to say it was a fraud, but, you know, things change with time, and we have to understand that we discover new things, and, and if you don't change with it, um, you're really doing a disservice to your patients. And so um, here I am now in, in 2020, and I'm just finishing my board certification in integrative medicine, and I have a very functional approach to practice, and it works very well because the common problems that I encounter <clears throat> are things like PCOS and infertility. And when we talk about what I consider to be like the five pillars of health, which are nutrition, exercise, stress reduction, sleep, and environment, a major impact, not only on their baby that's born into the world, but on their baby's health outcomes across their lifespan. So there's this idea of eats, breathe during pregnancy can really literally influence her, her unborn baby's DNA. And so I just think this is super impactful. You know, um, I mean, it's very nice to cure your grandfather who's 82 years old, cure his diabetes and get his A1C to normal level. But to get a pregnant woman to eat, you know, an optimal human diet and to literally, you know, change her baby's DNA structure, that's powerful when we're talking about changing health for, for decades and centuries to come. So I think what I'm doing is super exciting. I love it. I really enjoy it. Um, it's very fulfilling um, to watch patients be empowered to change their own health um, by things that they can do. They don't. They don't need a prescription for it, you know, or anything like that. They they just need someone to hold their hand and to and to be their cheerleader. So it's yeah. it's it's an amazing thing that I get to do every day. That's huge. There's there's so much there that I want to dive into, but I think it's it's worth noting from someone who is as educated and experienced as you, something that's so important for people to, to really internalize is that a lot of doctors, you've got this experience and this knowledge, but there's no sort of secret thing that you guys have or some pill that you can give to people that's going to fix it is so much of this is lifestyle stuff that is out there in the world, that the information is out there for free. It's about empowering yourself educating yourself, having some people who can hold you accountable or help you or guide you. Um, but it's not some sort of secret thing. Like if I get the right doctor or the right money or whatever, they'll give me the secret pill that everybody else has to make them healthy. It's like the information is already there. It's about guiding people and, and educating people about which sort of direction to go, um, which I think is empowering. It's not, it's less overwhelming to me, you know, to know that like the answers are there if you just know where to look and, and how to implement them in your life. Um, yeah, and what's really great about it is because because I'm a medical doctor, I also have these other amazing tools at my disposal. You know, I'm a surgeon. Um, I, I do operative vaginal deliveries. I I have medicines that I can use. But what's so cool about a functional integrative practice is that you get to actually be a doctor. You get to watch people try to fix things on their own. And then you're there to kind of fill those gaps. And it actually lets you use your brain and, and not just like live in these algorithms of, okay, you have 
A disease, take pill B, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's just really fun. Jamie, before we go any further, are you seeing this as being kind of choppy on your end? Because the, the connection- I'm not, no. Okay, I don't know if maybe it's just my side, but the internet, it's like we're a little like choppy and fuzzy, but as long as you can hear me fine, we'll keep going. You're good? No, no I can hear you fine. Okay. Did you know that you always wanted to get into obstetrics and gynecology? Was that like the area that you were always interested in or did that come later? No, actually, I wasn't even certain I wanted to go into medicine. When I um, was growing up, my mom was a nurse, but she was in healthcare administration. And she was the one that kind of said, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I probably just would have went to medical school. So I went to college on a pre-med track ended up getting into medical school. And when I got there, I thought I was maybe going to be an emergency medicine physician. When you start medical school, they have you write down your, um, your guess on a piece of paper and they hand it to you at graduation, which is so cool. But so I thought I would be an ER doctor because I grew up in like the Grey's Anatomy ER era where it was like, it looked really cool. It was fast paced, lots of procedures, you know, um, and then I quickly found out that that was not what I wanted to do because I love the relationship that you have with patients to see a patient for many, many years and to like follow their outcomes. And so ER is, is kind of like a, you know, like one and done, you may never see the patient ever again. And so I realized how much I loved surgery. So I really thought I was going to be a surgeon, but because we decided to start our family in medical school, um, surgery subspecialties are extremely competitive. The residencies are super long. And I just thought if I have to go into the hospital in the middle of the night, I would rather be delivering a baby than taking out someone's gallbladder. <laughs> and so I got to my OB rotation and just fell in love with it. Just working with women, um, actually having this small little slice of like happy medicine, like to deliver someone's baby. I mean, like the pure joy of like watching these moms and dads become parents for the first time um, is just truly incredible. But, you know, on the flip side of that, when it's bad, it's really bad. Um, so, you know, we definitely, we definitely get both sides of the coin there. Um, but it's, even when it's bad, it's still such a fulfilling, rewarding career to, to be part of these families' lives. I want to go down a quick rabbit hole already because you touched on this sort of the mental side of the work that you're doing. And it's a kind of a question that I've always wanted to ask. I know that everybody sort of has different um, strengths and weaknesses and, and areas where they sort of thrive and step up to the plate. And, you know, there are things that are universally intimidating to a lot of people in terms of like performing under pressure and, you know, the whole like speaking in front of public speaking is like more terrifying to people than I don't know, death. It's like crazy. Um, but I always, I often think about, it. I, I know I have other friends that are, are doctors and surgeons and they do this incredibly important, but I think of as very high pressure work, right. That you're doing. Do you think that you, you have personalities that draw yourself to these high performance, um, careers, or do you also do work to get yourself mentally into that place? Like, like, you know, I just think about it. if I had your job every day, I would wake up freaking the hell out that I have to go deliver somebody's baby. Like I'm bringing somebody into this world. Like I feel like I would just spiral. I'd be so stressed out and nervous all the time. Do you, was that something you kind of had to overcome or were you always sort of ready for that kind of challenge? How do you feel about that? Yeah, honestly, I'm a person that really thrives in that environment. And I think it kind of dates back to being an athlete just really being super competitive and performance under pressure is what it is. And it's funny, you know, I've, I've done a lot of interviews where people ask about, you know, do you feel like being an athlete has made you a better doctor? And I, and I really think athletics is kind of this microcosm of life. It's almost, I was a pitcher, I was a softball player. And, and, and I think, you know, it's like you're stepping into the mound, you're thinking through, you know, what the surgery is going to be, what's the next step, you're visualizing it in your brain, you're using physical techniques to like bring your physiology down, get your breathing under control so that you can physically use a lot of the techniques I use competing at the collegiate level um, in my career in the delivery room when things are not going well, you know, a woman's bleeding, the baby's not doing well. Um, how do you stay calm? How do you perform? Yeah. That's an ouchie. <laughs> do we have another guest coming in? Okay. 
go have your sister take a look at it. <laughs> yes. Four year olds bleeding. But you know, in, in the doctor's house, like you have to have a limb missing to get any attention. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Okay. What about what about like you said, you know, when it goes right, it's this incredible, you know, feeling and there's nothing like it. And when it goes wrong, obviously it's it's incredibly heart-wrenching and intense what you're dealing with. Do you have and one of the things that I feel like a lot of type A, super ambitious, hard charging people have a problem with is taking their own downtime and recognizing their own requirements for recovery and mental health breaks and all of these things. Is that something that you incorporate all the time proactively? How do you unwind? How do you get outside of your work brain? How do you kind of recover from traumatic experiences that you're dealing with? Yeah. So first of all, it's taking care of myself physically is the biggest thing that allows me to do what I do day in and day out. Um, by eating right, by getting, you know, quality sleep. Um, I do have to find ways to decompress. Exercise does that to a great, you know, really high degree for me. Um, but sometimes, you know, breath work, meditation, red light therapy, we take a lot of vacations. You always have to be balancing, you know, one of the pillars I talked about was stress and it's basically stress is okay. Um, stress is good for us but we have to find ways to de-stress as well. And so that is definitely something that, that is a part of my daily, daily routine. And my husband works a high stress job too. So I think really open communication about your feelings and being able to come home and talk about it. I mean, I might have a horrible tragedy that happens at the hospital and I got to come home and sit at the dinner table with my family, you know, and I can't just pretend like nothing happens. And so, you know, my friends and family have, have supported me through, through the good times and the bad times. And um, there's going to be more of them. That's, that's pretty much guaranteed. But I think in medicine, burnout is high. Um, it is right now. It's very high because um, our healthcare system is not allowing doctors to be doctors and doctors aren't taking care of themselves either. And it's a, it's a real problem. It really is. Yeah. Do you find that you get any kind of um, overt pushback or friction from the sort of traditional medical system when you're obviously doing things in a, in a different way, like with this functional approach and this sort of proactive lifestyle approach to health, which as you said, isn't necessarily the way that the mainstream medical system is working, which is much more reactive and putting band-aids on things that are wrong instead of, uh, you know, dealing with the actual issues. Do you, do you find that you get kind of, um, yeah, like pushback from the, the rest of the medical community or, or not so much? Yeah, I mean, I think four to five years ago, um, people thought I was crazy. <laughs> but I think that, you know, the more that you just lead by example, um, I think people have watched my own kind of personal health transformation and it's really hard to deny those results. I mean, I made my blood work public. I'm like, listen, like here it is. And, you know, I, I came from an academic institution where it was very like evidence-based medicine, evidence-based medicine, evidence-based medicine. And I, and I do still stand on that. I mean, I think we need, we need good studies. We need data. Um, the problem is, is that prior to like social media and the amazing world of technology that we have today, when you look at a clinical study, it took almost 17 years for that to translate into clinical practice. So, you know, the game changers in this world sometimes have to put their neck out there um, and, and try new things. And I think that really the answer to where we need to go in healthcare is more of a functional approach. And I'm, and I'm starting to see my colleagues' eyes really opening to this. You know, four or five years ago, they said, she's crazy, she's a quack. And then, you know, about two years ago, they said interesting. You know, I think these are good ideas. And I, you know, even within the last 365 days, um, I, I have colleagues in my own practice who are getting other additional certifications. They, they see it, they're believing it, um, because the results just speak for themselves. So, you know, I think we're starting to kind of see this trend, but yes, um, people who do things differently will always be viewed under, under a different lens and, and that's okay. I, I know at the end of the day, when I put my head on my pillow that I'm doing the best I can for myself and for my patients. And, and I mean, there are truly quacks out there. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So we, we always a lot have to take everything with a grain of salt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like it's just disgusting to me to like see people selling like keto pills and like all this craziness. I mean, there's always every 
where in the world an opportunist um, that will always dirty the water, always, so. I think there's also, I mean, this is kind of a bigger issue that I've been discussing with a lot of my friends in this community uh, recently, and I want to tread lightly here because we're all just trying to figure it out, and I think so many of us do have our hearts in the right place, even if the execution isn't always great, but I feel like one of the things I've been struggling with, um, like even during sort of the pandemic time and people who are trying to educate on maybe ways to improve immunity or improve fitness or improve, you know, just general health in, in frightening times like this, there's a lot of people out there that I think are saying the right thing, but they're not saying it in the most helpful way. And so like, for example, I'll see people on social media who are making comments about how to improve immunity or how to be in better shape or all of these things. And I'm looking at it and I'm thinking like, I agree with this person and I am completely turned off by the way that they're communicating it. And I think that, again, people are frustrated, right? It's like knee-jerk reactions. Like, I'm just frustrated. I want you to hear this. I want you to get this information. But I feel like a lot of this, I just want to prove that I'm right versus helping people is, is hurting mm -hmm. a lot of people. And it's turning people off because one of the things that I've learned from just my experience being in the, the fitness world and being a health coach or being a journalist and, and writing about new information is that you cannot change people's minds by making them feel stupid and making them feel bad, you know? And so I think that it's, it's just as important that the message that we're putting out is put out in a way that's going to be able to be received by the people who need it. Because I, I've fallen victim to this too, where I am so jaded that I'm just like, what's even the point of putting this information out? Because literally I'm preaching to my own choir. I'm speaking to people who are already agreeing with me and the people who don't agree with me aren't going to hear it because they don't want to hear it because we're so divided and divisive that if I'm saying anything you don't already like or agree with, you're turned off and vice versa. So how, how do you kind of get through that? Like I know you spoke earlier about just sort of leading by example, just doing the things that you believe are best and right and people kind of come to you when they need to. But is that something that you kind of struggle with too in terms of how you're actually putting the information out into the world and how you're engaging with people who like really need to hear it, you know? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> you know, like as an example, like I'm a board certified ketogenic nutrition specialist. Like I use therapeutic ketosis and ketogenic therapies for specific medical conditions. But like the word keto was like the most Googled word in 2018. And, and, you know, people may go to my social media and they're like, Oh, she's a keto doctor. Oh my gosh. Like, and immediately it discredits, you know, like whatever I'm, whatever I'm doing, because I think that in the world of like health and wellness, it's always been about weight loss. It's always been about fat loss. And there are a hundred ways to lose weight. Yeah. But what I guess, I guess where I try to have my voice be the loudest is that what I'm doing has nothing to do with your weight, has nothing to do with weight loss. It's about metabolic health. And that's the message that we need in medicine. Um, because there are people that might have a BMI of 27 and they're metabolically healthy, right? We, we need to like get away from like these numbers and categories and we need to start looking at biomarkers and looking at people individually. And, and I just, honestly, I ignore the noise because, you know, like they say, your mind, your mind goes where your thoughts are. And it's, you know, I just, I don't engage, I don't engage with, with people on social media and these arguments and things like that. And I just, I just do what I'm supposed to do every single day. Sorry, guys, I'm interrupting my own damn self here to tell you about today's show sponsor. And before you skip through, I got to tell you, this one is offering the biggest discount of any of them at 20% off. So maybe listen to this one. I'll keep it brief. Okay. All right. Bubs Naturals is my only source for collagen and MCT powder. And look, I'm nothing if not consistent with the things that I love, right? Basically, my life is held together by collagen, coffee, chocolate, and organ meats. What else do you need, really? But anyway, Bubs makes the best collagen of all of the kinds that I've tried, which is a lot. It mixes better than basically any other product. Uh, their MCT powder goes into my coffee every morning and makes it delicious and creamy and full of healthy fats. 
which is great for people who are trying to, I don't know, stick to a lower carb thing, a keto thing. If you're trying to compress your eating window and you want to have something to tide you over in the morning, it's perfect. Um, the company also gives a full 10% of their earnings to a charity that supports military veterans, which is a cause near and dear to my heart. Um, and that's basically unheard of in the industry to give that much money to a philanthropic purpose. But they're basically a company that focused on giving back first before making money, which honestly is very unique today. So they just happen to make really great products. So go to bubsnaturals.com, use the code muscle maven, get some collagen for your gut health and your beauty, get some MCT to support those low carb goals. And you're doing something to help the world and make it a better place at the same time. So bubsnaturals.com code muscle maven for 20% off. And now back to the show. That's the smart way to do it. Easier said than done sometimes for those of us who get, you know, mired into it. But like, no, that's, that's definitely the right approach. And I, again, I kind of relate to this too, because coming from my background work-wise was in the sort of paleo community, right? Which again, ultimately, when you boil it down, the approach is really sound, I think, for a lot of people as a starting point, which is the concept of unprocessed whole foods, ideally seasonal and local and, uh, you know, foods that work well with your system and, and digest all that stuff. But when people hear the word paleo, they're like, oh, it's that weird caveman thing. I'm not a caveman. Like this isn't caveman times. I don't, yeah. whatever. And so there is sort of the, the upside of having this kind of like, uh, catchphrase or hot word that people can use to find each other can also be the downfall because people are like, well, that doesn't apply to me. Uh, you know, I don't, I'm not into it. Um, but both paleo and keto, which obviously have a lot of, uh, overlap, they're both lower carb approaches than I think the standard typical American, uh, diet is. And I kind of want to go into that, um, line of conversation now in terms of like speaking to women who are looking to get pregnant and women who are pregnant, because there's always been, I think a little bit of a taboo approaching, like trying to monitor or manage carbs for pregnant women. And this is kind of funny because I've spoken to, I actually have had a couple good friends um, and friends I think that we have in common who are you know, high level health professionals who have been pregnant recently, who are maybe, you know, nutrition experts who have told me like, look, I got pregnant and I'm telling you, I ate carbs the entire time. Like, I couldn't help it. Like it was the only thing I could eat. I had so many strong aversions to the things I normally eat. It was this crazy like mind F for me because I'm used to eating this way. And then I got pregnant and I just couldn't do it anymore. So can we, can we talk about that? Can we talk about the ketogenic approach for pregnant women and how to approach a lower carb diet and what happens if that doesn't work? Um, let's just get into all of that. Yeah. So um, first of all, before a woman gets pregnant, it's important to fix any underlying metabolic disease before you get pregnant. So suddenly when you get your positive pregnancy test, isn't the time to suddenly have like these life changes. So I get asked a lot like, oh my gosh, I just got pregnant. I just found out I got pregnant. Can I start doing keto? And, um, you have to be very cautious about, you know, starting extreme things in the middle of pregnancy because the physiology of pregnancy is, um, is different. <laughs> and people, first of all, are afraid to tell women how to eat because pregnancy in and of itself is very difficult to study, you know, because of the ethics of a woman being pregnant. And if there's adverse outcomes that affect, you know, it could affect your yeah. child forever and ever and ever. But the reason that pregnancy nutrition really matters is because when we look at pregnant women in this day and age, um, the, the complications of pregnancy in, in 2020 is excessive weight gain, gestational diabetes, gestational hypertension, preeclampsia, and it changes her delivery method. So it increases her risk of C-section if she has these complications. And so nutrition really matters because nutrition directly influences all of those things that I just named. And so pregnancy nutrition is, is, is super important. But let's talk about the hormonal adaptations because just like you mentioned, you might have like the carnivore keto of all time and they get pregnant in the first trimester. They're like, yes. Um, oh my gosh. I like, I feel like all I ate was French fries. A cracker yeah. or whatever it yeah. is. So the hormonal adaptations that happen in early pregnancy, which is basically the first trimester. So we're talking like conception to 12 weeks is largely anabolic. And in this stage, immediately the pancreas increases insulin production by about 30%. Um, and there's, um, a lower threshold for which insulin is, is secreted. And some people theorize this is 
due to this glycemic variability, that's why women experience a ton of, of nausea and vomiting in the, in the early first trimester. So, um, but in this first trimester, we do have an increase in insulin sensitivity. So all there's a lot more insulin circulating, you do actually have a little bit better insulin sensitivity. And this is not the portion of pregnancy where women should be worried about carb consumption. Um, there is this amazing, amazing thing that's happening inside their uterus. I mean, basically the, all the important organ systems of a baby are developed by week seven or eight. So your body is just constantly looking for fuel and women feel zapped for anyone that's listening. That's been pregnant. You know, it's like those first couple of weeks, like you haven't even told anyone you're pregnant and the <laughs> exhaustion by like seven, 8 PM because think of how much energy your body is, is, is using to make this tiny little thing. Yeah, it's crazy. So in the first trimester, it is really survival mode for a lot of women. It's just figuring out how they can get some nutrition in their body. And yes, women tend to really um, do better with more carbs in the first trimester. Um, my um, approach to it is also trying to figure out how to get that woman some protein. And women have a lot of meat aversions in the first trimester. And so, you know, whether it's just like, um, whether it's egg white protein or whey protein or protein shakes, sometimes just in those liquid, like very easily like digestible forms, um, can sometimes be helpful. But the first trimester is just really trying to make sure that they don't get micronutrient depletions. They're not losing weight. And it really sometimes is, is kind of a survival mode. But then in the second trimester, the woman tends to start to feel a lot better and um, in the second and third trimester is when the body starts to switch <clears throat> into more of a catabolic state and we start to see a decrease in insulin sensitivity. And this is physiologically normal. So <clears throat> what happens is that we see a rise in leptin, which is the hormone that tells a woman when she's hungry, but we also see this rise in insulin resistance. And so this leptin resistance and this insulin resistance is the nature's way of making sure however many, however much food you eat that you're still hungry. And this is like where the idea of pregnancy cravings comes from. You know, it's like, um, it wants to make sure there's, um, available fuel all the time for this growing baby. So the body is always team fetus. It's not team mom. So it will do anything at the mother's expense to make sure that there is available nutrients for the baby. So we see not only a rise in lipolysis, which is the breaking down of fat, but we see um, an increase in hepatic gluconeogenesis as well. So there is basically free fatty acids and ketones and glucose and all of these energy sources, they're all available. So women go into ketosis very easily in the second and third trimester because it's very catabolic. So I don't recommend women worry about like fasting or anything like that. We want women eating. We want them getting adequate calories and adequate micronutrients um, uh, for their baby, but they are in a baseline ketogenic state in the second and the, and the third trimester. And this is typically when women um, really need to watch their diet, especially any patient with a history of insulin resistance. And so the big question here is like, how many carbs should a woman eat? And the way that, you know, we approach it, when you look at the literature by the Institute of Medicine, they recommend that no pregnant women eat less than 175 carbs in pregnancy. But when you look at the data um, surrounding that, it's kind of what I call bad math. You know, they really took what they feel like is the absolute minimum amount of glucose for the baby's brain and, and for the mother. And then because of the additional calories needed in pregnancy, and then they look at two standard deviations and then they just round up a little bit and they come up with, with 175. Mm -hmm. um, it's not been studied at lower thresholds. So that's, you know, people are like, I mean, there is no data. That's the hard part about being an obstetrician and, and, and trying to guide women on how many carbs they should eat. But what we do know is that hyperinsulinemia and, and hyperglycemia uh, are very dangerous and, and can cause adverse outcomes. So women need to be eating to a carb threshold that gives them normal blood sugars and without hyperinsulinemia. And that's, that's where we have the issue is that we have this large proportion of women running around in the world and, and especially in the United States with quote unquote normal blood sugars or they pass their diabetes screen at 28 weeks but it's at the expense of hyperinsulinemia. And there um, was this great trial um, that came out about five, 10 years ago called the HAPO trial. And since then we've had the, the follow-up trial that's now looked at those offspring and kind of followed them for a number of years. 
And there's a clear linear association with hyperinsulinemia um, in pregnancy. And so there's like, we just have to pick this arbitrary cutoff, right? On who to call a diabetic and who to not call a diabetic. But the scary ones are the people that pass the test and think that they can go home and eat cereal. <laughs> Those are the ones that have huge gigantic babies and, and, and babies with long-term health risks, increased risk of obesity and diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So for, for most of my patients who are already coming into pregnancy, you know, low carb or ketogenic, um, we do a lot of glucose testing and we, and we see where their carbs fall. And, um, you know, I do have some patients that are very insulin resistant that may only be eating, you know, 50 or 75 carbs during the pregnancy. And I have some that are very insulin sensitive and maybe, you know, at that 150 to 175 range. Um, and that's because we're all built from, from different DNA and different body parts, but pregnancy in and of itself is an insulin resistant state. And um, we really have to moderate carb consumption to, uh, to make sure that, that the health outcomes of the mom and the baby are optimized. And nobody's talking about that, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Is it fair to say that, um, so we talk about, I know you've talked about this actually on our friend Rachel's podcast, her Metflex podcast. So we, and she and I have that, uh, the Facebook group that you helped out with, which I appreciate. But one of the things that we talked about a lot is this concept of metabolic flexibility. So for me personally, I've always considered a ketogenic approach and even like the carnivore, you know, fasting or resets or whatever as tools rather than something that I have to adhere to at all times. And I know that I'm in a fortunate position where I'm generally pretty healthy and I, I'm you know, aware of my signs and my signals and I'm pre-metabolically healthy and all of those things. But I've gone through the work of, of um, doing this kind of ketogenic approach to get to a point where I knew that my body was able and capable of burning fat. And now I'm a little bit more flexible to kind of go back and forth and adjust my diet as per my goals and what's going on in my life. And so sometimes it's a little bit higher carbs, sometimes it's no carbs at all. Um, and even my higher carbs, again, can, compared to like a standard American diet, it's, it's a lot lower. But is it fair to say that if people do that work, which is going to look different for everybody, to get into that fat adapted state and become metabolically flexible in that way, that that is something that sort of stays with you a little bit as you move forward. Not to say you can go back to eating cereal all day, every day, but once you've sort of established and, and been in this fat adapted, metabolically flexible state, that, that kind of can continue so that you don't have to, like your body sort of remembers it. Is that true or not at all? I mean, so this idea of metabolic flexibility, what's really, you know, when we look what's actually happening inside the body is that we're seeing downregulation of glute transporters, glucose transporters, and upregulation of, of MCT or monocarboxylic acid transporters, which transport ketone bodies. So, I mean, literally is doing when you're talking about becoming keto adapted is it's laying down a cellular network that makes it more efficient at using ketones as, as a fuel source because most people are, are great at using glucose until they become very insulin resistant and now they can't even use that efficiently or effectively and now they don't even have a backup fuel source and that's when they start to see disease. And so becoming metabolically you know, flexible is essentially upregulating those transporters that make you good at fat oxidation and it is true. It allows you to kind of flip back and forth more easily. And, and you hit, you know, you hit the nail on the head. It doesn't mean that you get to go back and start eating donuts and cereal again, but it means that you, you know, socially you can have a few more carbs here and there, or in your, you know, regular meals, you can start to add more squash and pumpkin and sweet potatoes and fruit, you know, on occasion. But yeah, for somebody like me, I mean, I, I have, I've done genetic testing. I have all the diabetes genes. You know, there's probably not going to be a point in my life where I get to eat 200 carbs a day again. I mean, it's just probably not going to happen. Um, and so, but, but yes, I mean, I do think that after you do some of the work and that's why I really encourage people to like be in a period of ketosis for many weeks, um, you know, when you're first starting and then, you know, start to play with it a little bit because if for my patients that are insulin resistant, I don't recommend being in ketosis all the time. I mean, that's... That's not necessary. Yeah, and it's just sort of unsustainable. And I feel like I feel like once you kind of do that work, it really does provide you with a huge amount of freedom that you only start to realize after you've done it. So what I have experienced, like when I was doing my my bodybuilding days and I was eating super low fat, high carb, which really for me it was it didn't really derange me metabolically too bad because I think I'm I, 
I'm lucky that I sort of do have a little bit of like flexibility in terms of how that goes. But I do remember when I was eating really high carb, low fat, that I needed to have those meals, right? Like if I didn't have those meals, I was hangry. And I went through this period of getting into ketosis and, and you know, lower carbs and all that stuff. And now all I know, like I'm not checking my glucose, I'm not checking my ketones, but I do know that if I want to fast for a day, I can, and I can, uh, I can function properly and, and well, and I'm not thinking about food all the time. I know that if I decide to go out and I eat rice or potatoes, or if I have a dessert, I don't get exhausted and cranky and have crashes anymore. And I know how to get back into that place where I'm, you know, eating a, in a way that sort of sustains me and fulfills me and my sleep is better and all of those things. So that's the thing that I've gained the most learning about um, keto and learning about sort of that metabolic flexibility is just that I, I have so much more leeway to, to do the things that I need to do and not be just thinking about food all the time, which I think is a, is an issue for a lot of women, especially probably everybody these days, but women, especially we spend so much time agonizing over food choices and whether we're making the right decisions and we, we attach so much morality and self-judgment to the things that we decide to eat or not. And, um, and I just think that having that process of learning how your body works and getting into um, ketosis for a while, it just gives you a bit more of a peace of mind, you know? Yeah, no, my, like, my mind used to like live and die by when my next meal or snack yes. was coming. I mean, it literally consumed me. Yep. Um, and I've never felt more free over the last couple of years than I have in my entire life. Yeah. Um, I don't think about food as often. Um, I, yeah, I think that a lot of, for a lot of women, they have a very obsessive relationship with food and, um, you know, with the, the level of mental health disease that we have in America, we use it as a, as a dopamine response. And, um, it's, it's just incredible uh, when you start fueling your body the right way, the, the freedom that you start to get from, from that. Mm -hmm. One of the things you mentioned earlier that I kind of wanted to come back to, which is this idea of, you know, somebody finds out that they're pregnant and it's suddenly like this switch turned on like, oh, I should probably start taking care of myself. Like I need to learn about my diet and I need to take care. And that's also a sort of a natural human reaction, right? When you realize that you're suddenly responsible for another life, often that can kickstart people into really caring about themselves and their own health. Um, so for people who, there's a lot of people who you, I'm sure you're dealing with or, or people who are always very health conscious and they become pregnant and they may continue on the way they're doing. But what about somebody who really has always just kind of eaten the standard American diet, isn't in this little health bubble that we're in where we talk and nerd out about this stuff all the time and they do become pregnant and they do suddenly want to like learn everything and try everything and do everything and be the healthiest they can be. Uh, you said there are obviously some sort of risks in completely overhauling what you're doing, but how would you recommend somebody start making some steps when they become pregnant and realize like, I'm not doing this stuff right. Like what, how do I start? Yeah. So every patient that comes to see me when they first get pregnant, we, we go through diet and we talk about how important protein is in pregnancy and how the protein require, requirements in pregnancy are higher. And so when we look at their diet, you know, if we can trade out some of the refined carbs in their diet for some extra protein, that in and of itself is going to be helpful for this woman. So we talk about protein and we talk about how much protein to eat. And then we talk about fat and we talk about how your baby's brain is made from fat and the nervous system is made from fat and how fat is important to eat as well. But we talk about the types of fat and we talk about how like eggs and butter and organ meats and these things can be super helpful for your baby's you know, development and how the fats that you really need to be avoiding are things like vegetable oils, canola oils, trans fats. And then when it comes to carbs, we talk about whole food carbohydrates. So, you know, if a woman, no matter, you know, what her percent of macros or whatever it is, the more she can eliminate vegetable oils, refined carbs, and sugar from her diet when she's pregnant, her and her baby will be healthier. Um, and so when it comes to carbs, you know, if we, if we have any insulin sensitivity testing from outside of pregnancy, we use that to kind of guide us. We talked about those changes in the first you know, trimester and the second trimester. Something like a prenatal vitamin though is like an insurance policy. It's like an insurance policy if you have a bad day because no one's perfect. And if you needed a little extra folate or a little extra choline that day, you know, that's what a prenatal vitamin is for. A prenatal vitamin is not 
supposed to be the, the panacea of, of a healthy baby. Um, it needs to come from your food. And I, and I remind them that your food has more bioavailable nutrients than any pill or injection or potion or lotion or patch that I can give you. And so once women kind of understand that, once again, it just empowers them that they do, they do have an opportunity, even though they've made years of bad decisions and now they're suddenly pregnant, they do have an opportunity to influence the health of their baby. Um, we just have to be careful. The only reason I kind of brought up like don't do anything crazy extreme is because if a woman goes from eating 400 carbs a day to eating less than 25, yeah. um, she could definitely have some electrolyte disturbances and things like that that happen. So we just have to be a little cautious about all of a sudden you know doing extreme things. And like I said, I don't want people fasting, doing any sort of extended fasting in pregnancy. Um, but but you can absolutely make an impact even if even if you're suddenly having this awakening right now. Yeah. What are the, I know you can't speak in absolutes obviously, but what are the increased protein requirements for pregnant women rather than just sort of everyday trying to be healthy women? Yeah. So the Institute of Medicine, the recommendations for protein is about like 71 grams of protein per day or like 1.1 gram per kilogram, which honestly is too low. <laughs> um, and, you, and really studies, when you look at the studies on protein consumption in pregnancy, it's probably at least 1.2 grams per kilogram in the first trimester. And then in the second and third trimester, because it's so catabolic, about 1.6 grams per kilogram per day. So it's, it's really, honestly, it's more protein than most women are used to eating unless they came in with some sort of high protein diet. Um, but it's super important protein. I don't look at as energy. I look at protein as like the building blocks of your baby, right? Like these are the Lego parts, like your baby's being built from, um, make, you know, we got to make sure we have enough Legos in there. So, um, it's, it's definitely higher than most women are, are used to eating. And if they're not used to eating, you know, meat and animal, you know, uh, dense proteins, it can be very difficult. Like my vegan vegetarian patients, it's very difficult to get enough protein in their diet. Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned somewhere, and I really like this, the, that a woman's menstrual cycle is like her fifth vital sign. And I think, I think you've talked before about how if women are on keto and they're losing their period, like there's obviously some things that need to be addressed there. I think, you know, I, I've spoken to a lot of friends who are keto, who have lost their period either temporarily, or they're trying to sort of figure it out. And I think that I'm sure that some of this might have to do with just the the severe change maybe that they're taking too quickly. Like if they're going from a standard super high carb diet to they cut all carbs out immediately, that could be an issue. Um, and also I think the fact, this is something we've kind of talked about a little bit over this call is the fact that a lot of women tend to under eat, right? Like they're going to under eat protein mm -hmm. or they're going to use a new diet as a excuse to restrict even further because they've got this dysfunctional attitude towards food. But can you speak a little bit more to that connection between um, people, women doing a keto diet and maybe losing their period and what that could mean? Yeah. So a woman's menstrual cycle is important because a woman's body is basically always trying to get pregnant. Every single month it's anticipating possible pregnancy. And so if you lose the menstrual cycle, usually what it means is you're not ovulating and the basically made a decision that this is not a good time to get pregnant. It could be from um, lack of nutrients. It could be energy. So it could be for a, a multitude of reasons, but it's not normal. And so if you've lost your period, you need to start making an assessment of all the different areas of your life and where maybe you're not optimizing something. And, you know, there's these nutrient sensing pathways. So I've seen women who have come off years of birth control pill use, and they might be depleted in zinc, selenium, magnesium, you know, you name it, they didn't have a great diet. Um, or I've seen women in the keto world who um, have either been under eating um, or they're chronically stressing their bodies with intermittent fasting or extended fasting. Um, or I've seen women who, um, you know, get their body fat too low. Um, it can be for a variety of reasons. So it's hard for anybody listening to say, well, well this, you know, this is you because it's, it's different for every single woman. But if you've lost your menstrual period, something is not normal and you need to get it checked out. Um, and, Sometimes it can be thyroid dysfunction, but it's, you know, uh, it can be fixed. Tease those reasons out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't want to keep you here too long because we could talk forever, but I, I really have to pivot quickly and ask you about Titan Games because 
so exciting. I watched the first episode. First of all, you got to meet my lifelong crush, which is obviously The Rock. Um, I laughed really hard, though, in the first episode when um, one of your daughters was saying, who's more handsome, Daddy or The Rock? And you, of course, immediately, you're like, of course it's Daddy, come on. But I was like, that's, I mean, you got a handsome husband, but The Rock, I mean, he's, anyway. Okay, I'm going back to The Rock already. But this was such a cool experience. I mean, tell us about it. Like, how did you get involved in it in the first place? So. About a year and a half ago, I was in the operating room and I'm scrubbing into surgery and the scrub tech that I was working with was like, hey, I think you should go on NBC Titan Games. And I'm like, Titan Games, what? What are you talking about? Season one, I think was maybe halfway or maybe it was even over. I'm not sure. But I went and you know looked it up online and I'm like, this reminds me of American Gladiators yes. when I was a little girl. I'm like, this is so cool. But I'm watching you know these people and I'm like, I can't do this stuff. Like, this is crazy. Like, I'm a doctor. I'm a mom. Like, I don't train like that. You know, like... And you kind of have all these self-doubts, you know, but then of course, you know, here's this little bug, like I'm, I'm very competitive and, um, I look up the application online and I look what you have to do. And I'm like, Oh, I don't know. I just don't know if I could do this. So kind of like weeks to months go by and it's just kind of like gnawing at me in the back of my brain. <laughs> and, um, at the time I had started, you know, following the rock and Titan games on social media. And so of course I saw when they were looking for applicants for season two, and um, I ended up applying, made a video, submitted the application, waited like months, um, just really never expected that anything would come of it. And um, around Christmas time, I found out that I was invited to come out to the Combine. So they actually have like a physical tryout you have to come out to. And um, they put you through all this testing and, and they only brought 60 to 70 people out to the Combine. And then they, were, they, told, they told us there's only going to be 18 women and 18 men that make the show. So even just getting invited out there was like such a huge, you know, amazing thing. Um, but then like two to three days later, I got a call that I was selected by the rock and the NBC executives to come compete on Titan games. And it was like, it was like a dream come true because like I said, here I am, like, I'm not a, prof- I'm not a professional crossfitter. I haven't competed in athletics since, um, I left Nebraska in 2007. <laughs> so the, like more than 12, 13 years ago. So, um, man, it just like reignited a fire inside my belly to like be out there in Titan arena and you got the rock and you got the crowd and you got the uniform on and what an incredible experience to go out and compete and the people that they selected for the show, you know, the rock has, you know, you've everybody seen as commercial. These are like real everyday heroes and the jobs and the backgrounds and the stories of these people, you guys aren't even hearing it all on TV because they only have so many minutes, you know, to show it to you. Um, but these are just really, really incredible people. And I was just honored to be among them, honestly. Yeah. I, I, I got that same kind of vibe because my like dream job for my entire life growing up was to be an American gladiator. Like I just wanted to put on one of those outfits and like hit people with a pugil stick. Like that just sounds like my dream job. So when this show came about, I was like, this is such a cool, uh, opportunity, but how did your, how did your training change? Like when you knew you were accepted and you had to, and you kind of had a sense of the types of physical like things you'd be doing? How did your training change? So they changed the, there are some repeat events and there are some new events for season two and they did change the format. So they inserted these celebrity Titans and kind of changed it. But from when I found out that I was selected to come out to the combine to when we actually competed, I mean, it was like less than a month. So clearly you're not going to make any like (laughs) amazing, you know, gains in that short amount of time. But I, um, I went to a local gym here that had like turf and like heavy sleds. I mean, I knew I'd have to be like pushing things, pulling things. Um, what we didn't expect when we showed up is the producers of NBC Titan games are the same producers of American Ninja Warrior. And, uh, some of the obstacles this year were much more, um, like ninja like (laughs) I would describe it as. So I'm sure anybody that watched the first episode on chain link, um, you know, we're like climbing across these like chain link fences and around them and like jumping on and off of them. And, um, like nobody trains this way, honestly. Like I don't know that you Where could would you? specifically train a specific way because honestly, yeah. you get something like chain link, and then like the very next thing, you're pulling a 300 pound ball across the floor. I mean, it is like you have to be strong and fast and you know agile and everything. I mean, it's it's the you know best all around athlete that's going to win it because certain events will be to your strength and certain events won't. 
Yeah, I would imagine probably a safe bet, though, is a lot of this grip strength thing, right? Like speaking yeah. to people, like all of this hanging and pushing and kicking things, but you've got to be like using your grip the entire time. Like some of the things I saw you doing, like you're, you're holding on to something, keeping your body weight up with your hands for a very long time. And that's honestly, I feel like, I mean, that's something that I, I guess you, I've read a lot in general sort of literature, but it's like grip strength has a, um, a lot to say about your overall health, right? Because I think it's one of those things where it tends to be a weak point. So if you have a strong grip, chances are the rest of you is doing pretty good too, because that's usually where we mess up, right? Like if we're trying to deadlift, it's going to be our grip that we lose before our like leg strength or something, for example, right? So yeah, I'm thinking like- Yeah, 100%. Those, yeah, those two events happened like hours apart and the forearm pump was like real (laughs) after the second event. And I was actually going to say that too, because when I was watching it the other week, when I was watching your episode, I was thinking like, are these all happening in the same day? Because for example, like you may have done a couple, a couple um, challenges before you do that final one against the like celebrity Titan. And like that, that girl is coming out fresh. She hasn't done anything yet. Is that true? Like, are they all happening on the same day? Yeah. It's hard for the people at home to watch it. Cause you don't really know how it was filmed, but yeah, sometimes they happened on the same. I mean, it is true. There were certain days where you might've competed. Like I think the max would have been three times. And then there are certain days where your competition was fresh. Um, I can't of course tell you like all the nuances of the show. Like, um, I signed this yes. <laughs> multi-page contract, but yeah, I mean, there were, you know, certain things where you may have kind of thought, well, this is like fair, or unfair. And you just had to keep reminding yourself, like, this is a TV show. Um, <laughs> it's, it is what it is, it's but it was, fun. it was so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, people need to stay tuned cause it's not over. Um, I'll be back on episode three. So. Is it? Yeah. There's another episode. Well, the day that we're recording this, it's on Mondays, right? Is it? To, okay. Yep. Yep. So it shows on Mondays. And so as of today, June 1st, episode two will air tonight and it will finish out the central um, region competitors. And then on episode three, I will be battling my way back versus the people who um, won or lost tonight to try to get back into the regional finals. Okay. So cool. Um, and we, we talked earlier about this whole like performance anxiety thing and how, you know, you've got this athletic background and obviously the work you're doing is so incredible and life-changing and huge that I would imagine it would help put things in perspective. Like when you're competing on the rocks TV show, but still you're in, you're in front of millions of people. Like you're doing this in a huge stage where people are watching you and cheering and you know, what's going on TV. Did you have like crazy butterflies or were you just excited? Were you just like pumped to go or were you nervous? Oh no, the butterflies were a hundred percent real. Um, because like I said, I haven't competed in years. And so, and honestly, what people may not know is I have only been back in the gym lifting weights for two years. Um, so to be like where I am now, um, really honestly is, is incredible. And I've done it amongst being a mom of three and a full-time job. And, you know, that's part of my story too, is that really like you have no limits and you can have anything you want if you're willing to work for it. And, you know, for me having my three little girls in the front row, I just wanted, I like at the end of the day, I just really wanted them to think that their mom is like a total badass like that. I mean, I was just like, I don't even care if I lose. Like, I just want them to like see me do this and just know that like they can do this too. That was, I mean, at the end of the day, that was, that was my goal, but, um, it, it, no, I mean, the butterflies are real. And what people may not know is we didn't get to touch those obstacles. I mean, so when you see like the three, two, one pyrotechnics go off, and we're like racing, like that's the first time we've ever touched it, ran it, like we didn't get a practice to, so uh, like you're seeing it for real. That is so nuts. That was a question I was asking too. So my husband and I are watching this. And first of all, we, that's exactly what he said. Like he was watching the show and he's like, look at these little girls watching their mom, like crush this crazy obstacle. Like she's superwoman. Like how incredible, like it honestly makes me emotional. Cause I'm thinking like, I, I feel so strongly about women feeling empowered and confident and having role models that make them believe that they can do anything. And like, look what you're doing for your kids. But like anybody else who's watching the show, they're like, you're a doctor, you're a surgeon, and you're like dressed up like a superhero, like crushing this thing on, on national TV. Like it's just, it's, it's incredible. Like anyway, I just, I can't speak highly enough about it because again, as a huge 
old school American Gladiators fan, but just a fan of strong women doing awesome stuff. I just, it's so impressive and I'm having so much fun watching your, your journey. Like I can't wait to see what happens. You were already crushing it, but I can't wait to see what happens next week. I'm so excited. I, I would, I would love to tell you it's going to be fun though. <laughs> yeah. All right, Jamie. Well, I won't keep you any longer, but I really, really appreciate your time. I appreciate you sort of, um, walking me through some of this stuff. Cause like I said, I'm, I'm kind of maybe looking to, uh, to have this crazy journey and experience myself sometime sooner rather than later and having people like you as resources that can just be sort of a voice and a, a helping hand along the way is incredibly, incredibly helpful. So Thank you so much for all the work you do and um, best of luck with work and Titan games and life. And hopefully we'll be able to do this again sometime soon. Thanks for letting me come on. It's seriously an honor. And thanks for what you do for, for women too. Um, we, we need lots of voices. Absolutely. Thank you. And that's all for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for being a part of this journey and supporting the podcast. Uh, would you, here's a question. Would you go on the Titan games? If you could, if you, you know, applied and, and the rock said, yeah, sure, let's do this. I don't know if you've watched an episode, maybe go watch an episode first and then decide. I think I would, even if I have a very good chance of like embarrassing myself hugely, um, in front of Dwayne Johnson. I think I'd still do it. It's a very, very fun looking show and such a cool concept. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And if you are enjoying it, the best way you can help me is by leaving me a nice rating and review on Apple Podcasts, because that's how I move up the rankings and get more people seeing the show. And also just by sharing it on social media or with anybody that you think could actually learn something from the content we're putting out there, because there's no point putting all this useful stuff out into the world if people don't see it and aren't helped by it. And I think learning is a collaborative process. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. We have to share and learn and discuss and talk together. You know, sharing is caring. So please do that for me. Please send me also any feedback or thoughts or suggestions you have um, so we can make the podcast better. I can get some guests on there that you would love. The best way to do that is to reach out to me on Instagram at the muscle maven. Or you can go to my website, ashleyvanhouten.com. This is all in the show notes in case you can't spell my name. And sign up for my weekly newsletter. I put all kinds of information out there. Thank you again to Bubs Naturals for supporting the show and just being great people in general. Go to bubsnaturals.com and use the code MUSCLEMAVEN, of course, for 20% off the best, in my opinion, the best collagen and MCT powders on the market your hair and your nails and your gut and your muscles will thank you. So crush that. And if you get any of it, I definitely want to hear what you think. So tag me on Instagram. Let me know how you're using it. Let me know how you're feeling. Um, cause I love nerding out on stuff like that. So that's it. Join me next Tuesday. And until then, I hope you stay happy and healthy and having fun. Thanks guys.